Acts chapter 19, while they're receiving the offering, a couple of quick announcements. Don't forget this Saturday uh, is the leadership conference at Central Baptist Church in Southington. Uh, there is no charge for this. Registration starts at 8 o'clock. Uh, Dr. John Hamlin will be uh, one of the main speakers. Brother Corey Bain, who will be with us all day Sunday, will also be there on Saturday. Uh, they will have dozens and dozens of workshops. Uh, that are on just about any area that you want, whether it's uh, ministry related or how to have devotions, how to win a soul to Christ, just all kinds of things uh, to help you in your Christian life. And uh, so I encourage you to go up for all or part of the day. Uh, if you can't be there in the morning, go for the afternoon or vice versa. Uh, there's information out on the bulletin board, and again, I hope that uh, many of you will take the opportunity to go and to be a part of that. Uh, this Sunday night, right after the evening service, the young adults class is going to have a get-together. Uh, they're going to be upstairs in Brother Carson Vara's classroom. There's a sign-up out there. It's sort of a games and lots of food night. And uh, so sign up. You don't have to bring food. They just would rather you be there. Uh, but if you can help out, sign up, and they'll, they'll plan on that. And that's for anybody out of high school up through age 35, single or married, uh, just come and be a part of this. Uh, this is the first uh, class activity for you. And then at the end of this month on the 30th, uh, we're going to start a, a, a discipleship class where the John Snow will be teaching that. And uh, so uh, that's probably, I think we're going to be having that in Michaela's classroom. And what room number is that? It's on the first floor. She doesn't even know her classroom. Um, and that's for anybody newly saved or perhaps uh, new to the church or maybe you've never gone through a discipleship class before. It'll be 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings um, and it's, it's a great pr uh, program. It'll be about 10 weeks long and it'll just kind of keep uh, uh, rotating uh, uh, as people come through that. And so I hope that uh, if you don't need it, maybe you know somebody that will and you can encourage them to come and be a part of it. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 19, and uh, we are studying what is probably Paul's longest and most fruitful ministry of his entire life. Paul was an amazing missionary. Uh, he, would, he took three separate missions journeys. Do we have the map up for us? Yes, we do. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time in review, so we can uh, move forward just a little bit. But as Paul ended his second missionary journey in Corinth, uh, he traveled across uh, the Aegean Sea and he came to the city of Ephesus, which is right in there. He was only there for a short time, according to chapter 18. He went to the synagogue and they seemed to respond very well to him, which didn't always happen. Uh, they wanted him to stay longer, but Paul had this burden on his heart that he needed to get to Jerusalem. And so uh, he left after just a very short time uh, and he traveled to Jerusalem, back up to Antioch, and eventually began his third missionary journey overland with this route that is here. Uh, about 1,500 miles. Again, we don't know if he traveled on foot or horseback or a little bit of both. And he ended up finally back in the city of Ephesus again. While he was gone from Ephesus, some friends of his, Aquila and Priscilla, he met them in Corinth. Uh, they stayed in Ephesus. They met a man uh, who came from Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, he, the Bible says very eloquent man. Mighty in the scriptures, can anybody remember his name? He was Apollos. Uh, he was a disciple of John the Baptist, 
and uh, he, he, uh, it appears that he was a saved man. He, had, he, he believed the message that God was sending his Savior. He just didn't know all the details. He had some gaps in his understanding. So Aquila and Priscilla took him down and they taught him. Uh, and this man that was so fervent in spirit, so knowledgeable, so talented, was a very teachable man. He had a humble quality about him. And Apollos uh, left Ephesus and he went back over to Corinth and became the pastor there for a time. And right after he left uh, Ephesus, Paul came back. We saw in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, that when Paul came into the city, he encountered 12 men who were also disciples of John the Baptist. Now, these guys didn't seem to have any background or understanding of the Bible at all. They had been baptized uh, whether it was by John the Baptist or by one of John's disciples, but they didn't seem to know anything about the Bible. At some point in the conversation, Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Ghost since they believed, and they said, we've never even heard that there was a Holy Ghost. Well, John preached about the Holy Spirit, and we looked last week, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, talked about the Spirit of the Lord. So these guys... Um, they, they, they had some religion. Uh, they were Jewish men, undoubtedly, uh, but they, they, didn't, they didn't understand it. So Paul just took them through uh, the plan of salvation, proclaimed Christ to them. They got saved. They got baptized uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul did something unusual, verse number six of chapter 19. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, this didn't happen most of the time when people got saved. It happened occasionally. Paul laid hands on something we do when we ordain someone to the ministry. It is a symbolic gesture of placing authority upon them or apostolic authority upon them. And Paul did that uh, to these 12 men. And the Bible says the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Uh, it is the last time the speaking of tongues is mentioned in the book of Acts. Remember, it wasn't gibberish or, or flopping around like a dead fish on the ground. It was a known language um, that, that, the, that the listeners could understand and so forth. Uh, and it was a sign gift that confirmed Hebrews chapter 2 that the word the apostles were proclaiming was truly of God. Remember, the New Testament had not been penned yet. Um, and so forth. Uh, we ended at verse 7, and all the men were about 12. Many Bible historians believe that these 12 men became the elders or pastors of the church at Ephesus. Um, there, there's, uh, we only know that from history, not from Bible um, and the church fathers seem to point to that. We don't know their names, and so we won't, we won't be dogmatic upon that. But we want to move forward to Paul's uh, ministry now here in the city of Ephesus. A little bit of background. Ephesus was already an ancient city by the time Paul got there. It was established uh, about 1,100 years before Christ. Um, it, it went through many, many hands. The Persians had it for a while. The Greeks had it for a while. By Paul's day, uh, it was a Roman colony and so forth, but it was a very wealthy city, and it was a very strategic city. There was a harbor 
right in here that was very well protected from the elements. And so from the Roman Empire on the western side, they would come here and all of the goods from the far east would end up coming to Ephesus to be shipped over to Rome, which is somewhere over here uh, on the other end of the map. Um, Ephesus was best known in the ancient world for the Temple of Artemis, also the temple called the Temple of Diana, your namesake. Um, somehow I didn't put this together, but according to mythology, um, Ephesus was the homeland of the Amazons. They're the ones that deliver all your packages uh, to you. The women warriors, strong like Russian bulls. Um, and uh, that's, that's where they came from. And uh, one of their champions was Diana of the Ephesians, uh, better known in the DC world of comics as Wonder Woman. Yeah, you didn't know that that all fit together somehow in there. But the Amazons, that's actually where that mythology came from. The temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis, those names are interchangeable, uh, was built, destroyed, and rebuilt about three different times. By the time Paul came to the city, the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was considered of those seven, we're talking the, the, the pyramids of Giza, the hanging gardens of Babylon and so forth. Uh, the temple of Diana was considered to be the number one uh, of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was about four times bigger than the Parthenon in Greece. The temple itself, not including the grounds around it, the temple structure itself was about the size of a football stadium. Um, and it was surrounded by massive uh, columns uh, and so forth. Uh, it was built on marshy land that they, uh, they filled in with sheep's wool and charcoal. They did it on purpose to make it earthquake proof. If it was built on solid ground, that, that, that area is prone to earthquakes. Remember, Turkey just had a massive earthquake uh, not that long ago, just a few weeks ago. Um, and so forth. So it they, they thought it would keep the, the, this temple uh, more secure, and actually it, that was pretty sound. Uh, the, the main feature of the temple of Diana was this massive, hideous statue that stood in the, in the uh, temple itself. Um, most historians believe it was probably the remnants of some type of a meteorite because their mythology said this image fell from heaven. And as it came through the atmosphere and the, the heat and, and all of that stuff, it melted it into this grotesque uh, form that, that if I guess you stared at it long enough, looked feminine in nature, that type of thing. And uh, so they, they, they built it and they worshiped this thing because, again, it fell from heaven, so it's a sign from God in the, in the pagan mindset. The, the worship of Diana uh, was the main religion for that whole region uh, that's uh, on your maps and up here, this region called Asia. They worshiped other gods, other goddesses. They worshiped the sun, moon, and stars. But Diana was by far the largest and most powerful cult in that particular region. So Paul is coming in to a very ancient city. 
a city that not only has a long history, but has a deep-rooted history in paganism. And these people are steeped in it, um, and they believe in it um, fanatically so. And so he's going to come walking in, and he's going to be begin proclaiming the gospel. Verse number eight, he starts where he normally does. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now we know from when he went to Corinth and Thessalonica, his manner was twofold. He always went in and into the synagogue and told the Jewish people and showed them from their scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, needed to suffer and die and be resurrected. The second thing that he always taught was that Jesus of Nazareth was that Christ. So he put those two teachings together and the Bible says that was his manner. So we know that's exactly what he's doing in Ephesus. Remember when he stopped there briefly at the end of his second journey, they were really intrigued by what he had to say. They wanted him to stay, but he said, no, I need to get to Jerusalem and now he's back. So he spends three months there. It's longer than normal. Um, you know, in Thessalonica, it was three Sabbath days and they kicked him out. So he's there for three months, but verse number nine. But when divers, that means diverse members of this synagogue, that would have been Jews, proselytes, and so forth, were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So he's there for three months. These people at first, yeah, this sounds great. And they're, they're, he's showing them from the Bible. Paul was a, an incredible Bible scholar. Apollos had been there. Um, and uh, notice what it says in verse 26 of chapter 18 about Apollos. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So Paul's not the first voice. He is just one more voice taking their Hebrew scriptures, uh, helping them understand uh, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, understanding salvation by grace through faith. But at some point, a whole bunch of people just decided this is not what we want to hear anymore. And the Bible says three things about them. Number one, they were hardened. They were hardened. They developed a callous in their heart. They didn't want to hear it anymore. Name somebody in the Bible who is famous for hardening his heart against the Lord. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Um, the Bible says several times that he hardened his heart. He was seeing God do amazing things. Um, even before the plagues started, Moses and Aaron walked in with the message from the Lord and said, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh said, I, I don't know you and I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to let him go. And then the challenges started. And if you remember, Aaron cast his rod down and what happened to his rod? It turned into a serpent. Pharaoh's magicians cast down their rods. What happened to them? turned into serpents as well, but Aaron's rod swallowed them all up. 
And uh, then he picked it up and it was back into a rod again. Pharaoh looks at these miraculous things that are taking place and he just says no. We harden our hearts just by saying no to God. We just don't like what he said. We don't like what he's telling us. It's not that it's not Bible. We just don't like what the Bible says and we say no. Pharaoh did that over and over again, but along the way, as not only did Pharaoh harden his heart, but in the book of Acts, it also, or Exodus several times, it says, the Lord hardened his heart. You know, it's a dangerous thing when you and I harden our hearts. It's even worse when God hardens it. Because what that says is we've crossed the line and God's done talking. God's gonna show us and he's going to prove that he's God, but, but he's hardened our hearts because that's what we've already done with ourselves. You say, yeah, but Pharaoh was a lost man. And these people here in Acts 19, they were lost. Turn, if you would, please, to the gospel of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter, let me make sure I'm in the right spot. Yep, Mark chapter six. And uh, look, if you would please, to um, verse 45. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. We're talking same day. We're talking the same evening. And straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship. So it's his disciples let me ask you this question. Are they saved or lost? They're all saved except one who's lost. Judas Iscariot. But the other 11, they're saved, right? Okay. These are saved people with, again, the exception of Judas Iscariot. So straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. The first thing they thought was it's a ghost instead of, oh, it's the Lord. Uh, for they all saw him and were troubled and immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Read verse 52 with me. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves for their heart was hardened. They were just part of one of the greatest miracles of the entire Bible. Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves of bread. That means five big pieces of bread and two small fishes. They were part of that. Jesus gave them each some bread and fish and then they went out breaking it off to these people. Uh, I, I have no idea how the miracle worked, but the Bible said uh, everybody was fed to the full. It's not like they all licked part of the fish and just, you know, passed it on. That'd be just gross. 
um, the Bible says they all ate to the, to the full and then gathered up 12 baskets full of fragments. By the way, I don't think that was for them. I think that was for the boy who gave his lunch, personally. Um, these guys are watching all of this happen. This is an amazing thing. And the Bible says it meant nothing to them. They considered not the miracle of All these people did. All of these people are amazed about it. The disciples, I, I think they're beyond bored. They're bothered. Why do we have to do all this? We, we were supposed to be a, a, alone. We're, this is supposed to have been our day off. The Savior had said, come aside into a desert place and rest a while. And then the multitude showed up and they wanted uh, to hear what Jesus had to say. And he taught them all day. And then it was, it was uh, supper time and they had to be a part of feeding them and they got so busy uh, working and they were so tired about it that, that God did this miracle. It meant nothing to them. These are saved people. It's not just unsaved people that get hard hearts. Saved people get that way. See, we get so used to being in church. We get so used to the songs. We get so used to the preaching. We get so used to hearing it that we're bored with it. And that's a hardened heart. So we need to understand this is not just a Pharaoh thing, okay? And this is not just the lost Jews in that synagogue in Ephesus that were hardened. It can happen to us. Go to Hebrews chapter three. And then we'll be back in, in um, Acts 19 in a moment. Hebrews chapter three. Again, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people. Um, I believe it was written by the Apostle Paul. I believe when we read the book of Hebrews, we understand what he taught in all of these synagogues, proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. Hebrews is a marvelous book of the Bible, but as Paul writes to his own people, he says in verse 7, Hebrews 3, wherefore... As the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. He's gone all the way back to the Exodus with Moses. And all those people that uh, for 40 years... Uh, God fed them with manna. God parted the Red Sea for them. Uh, God led them by day in a pillar of cloud, by, by night in a pillar of fire. Uh, they heard God speak from Mount Sinai and all of that. And yet no matter what God said, no matter what God did, it was never enough. They, they just didn't like what God said. We're tired of manna. And, and why didn't God just let us stay in Egypt? Why do we got to do this? Just always complaining about everything. Um, and so we're being encouraged don't be like these people. God says in verse 10, wherefore I was grieved with that generation. This is the Lord speaking. And said, they do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. They, they missed out going to the promised land, that whole generation. I wonder what we're missing out on because we harden our hearts against the things of God. We just don't like that subject. We didn't like that sermon. We don't like that verse. I know the Bible says, but. Do you realize when we do that, that's hardening our heart. And whatever it is that God has for us, we don't get it. We miss out on it. And it's not God's fault. 
It's our fault. He said, verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we say, well, I know the Bible says, but that's unbelief. But then there's also the deceitfulness of sin. Well, I know the Bible says it's wrong, but I don't see anything wrong with that. Everybody else is doing it. And we buy the hoopla and the advertisement of the lost world. And, and sin is always deceitful. Um, has anybody driven down a highway and seen a, a, a billboard that is advertising some kind of booze? And in the picture that is showing, advertising, telling you to buy this booze, whatever it happens to be, it's, it's the picture of a man beating the living daylights out of his wife because he's drunk out of his mind. Has anybody ever seen that billboard? How about the car wrapped around a tree or a telephone pole? Anybody seen that? That's not how the devil advertises his product. Um, he always lies. The devil is a liar. Uh, always makes sin out to be fun. Always makes it out to be harmless. But it, it never is. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So I can be hardened by unbelief. Well, I know it's in the Bible, but I just don't believe that. I got a hard heart. I'm walking away from God. The, the, the deceitfulness of sin, I know it's wrong, but everybody else is doing it. Or I don't think it's that bad. Well, there's people doing a whole lot worse than me. Sin is sin, regardless of what anybody else is or is not doing. So the Bible warns us of the danger of a hardened heart. So we're back in Acts 19. Paul's been preaching and teaching to these people diligently for three months. And they've decided that they've hardened their hearts. They believe not. We're not going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You can show us everything that you want to show us. We're not going to believe that. And then they took it a step further, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. They started they started lying about Paul and his companions and, and their disciples, the people that got saved and the message um, and, and, and so forth. Before the multitude is probably just the unsaved world around them, those gathering in the synagogue, uh, any Gentiles that are being attracted uh, to, to this uh, uh, preaching of Paul and his companions. And now they're speaking evil of that way before the multitude. Uh, I, I mentioned when we were doing the prayer request, some of the bizarre things that we see going on in our culture, in our country today. Who would have ever thought that a parent standing up at a school board protesting pornography being placed in, in libraries for elementary children would be considered a domestic terrorist? What do you think of when you think of a terrorist? You think of people that, that strap bombs to themselves or fly uh, planes into buildings, right? Uh, but now, now they just use that same turn to a parent that says, I don't want my child reading smut. That's what they're doing with Paul, his companions, everybody that's been converted. They're speaking evil of that way. And they're lying. That's, be careful when you start hardening your heart against God, you have no idea where it's going to lead you. And these are, by the way, these are the Jewish people. They, one of their titles were the people of the book. 
These were the people to whom God had entrusted the Old Testament scriptures, the promises of God. The covenants were all theirs. They claimed to be Bible believers and, and they've hardened their hearts and now they're lying and speaking evil against the very message of God. The Bible says in verse nine, look on, when this happened, he departed from them. He's, he's given them the gospel. He's been patient. He spent three months teaching. So just like he did in, in Thessalonica, like he did in Corinth, um, he says, fine, I, I, I'm, I'm going to leave. He separated the disciples. Those are the ones that got saved, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Uh, we don't know much about this guy other than that his name means tyrant. Cool. That's what his name means. Uh, and and it's, there's, no, there's no indication that that's what he was. It's just that, that just happens to be the name that he had. He had his own school. He opened the doors and allowed Paul to come in. And they're using his school, if you will, as a church building. And uh, they're having church every day, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Look at verse 10. This is incredible. And this continued by the space of two years. So he's already been three months in the synagogue. Now he's in this school of Tyrannus for two years. This is Paul's longest ministry so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now look how big Asia is. It's this whole area marked in red. It's about half of the modern day country of Turkey. The Bible says that everybody in Asia, Jews and Greeks alike, heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the internet, without radio, television, without the printing press, they heard the word of the Lord Jesus. What was happening in Ephesus, people were getting saved. Ephesus was the hub. Everybody in that region came there to do their business uh, and, and their transactions and their finances. Uh, the Temple of Diana was, was the main hub of the pagan religion of all of that region. And as they come in uh, to the city, for whatever reason it happened to be, uh, they were encountering all these people that had gotten saved. People then got saved, and as they went back home, they took the gospel with them. And you'll see all over here, you have Ephesus, you have Smyrna, you have Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamon, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae. You realize that most of those are the seven churches of Revelation um, that, that uh, the Lord Jesus had a specific message to? Colossae was the church to whom the book of Colossians was written to. The pastor at Colossae was a man named Philemon to whom the book of Philemon was written to. Now, there's no evidence that Paul went out and started these churches. He may have traveled around. It appears that he was there in Ephesus. That was the, the center of, of his ministry. But his converts and his, uh, his students were going everywhere, taking the gospel with them. This was without a doubt the greatest ministry of the Apostle Paul's entire life. That whole region, everybody there heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine 
what could happen today if one church got the same burden, the same vision as the church at Ephesus. They did it without technology. They just did it because they had truth. They knew it was truth. They let that truth consume them and they told it to everyone. Now that doesn't mean that everyone in that region got saved, but everybody heard. It is not our job to save people, but it is our job to go. We are commanded to do that. That's not optional. That's not a spiritual gift. That's not a choice. We are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Whether they get saved or not, that's on them. But it's on us to go. Notice uh, what Paul said. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Paul leaves Ephesus for a while, and, and we'll get to that eventually, and we'll come back. But uh, please notice what Paul says uh, to the, the leaders of the church at Ephesus, verse 17, Acts 20. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but I have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 26. He's still continuing this message, and we'll look at it uh, in detail when we come to this chapter. He said, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul could honestly say with a clear conscience, Nobody's blood is on my hands. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I saw to it that everybody heard the gospel. Can we say that? The people you work with, have they heard the gospel from you? Uh, I, your, your family members, your, your, your neighbors, your classmates, have, have they heard the word of the Lord from you? They hear a lot from us. They hear us talk about all types of subjects but you understand the only subject that has eternal value is the gospel? Can we say, I am pure from the blood of all my coworkers? I am pure from the blood of all of my relatives. I am pure from the blood of all of my neighbors. You understand what Paul was saying? And we know when he's making that statement, God has already confirmed it. He wasn't just talking about the people in Ephesus. He's talking about this massive area and all the cities in there. The Bible says everyone heard the word of the Lord. Go back to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, an incredible ministry. Absolutely incredible ministry with this soul winning emphasis. Verse number 11, verse number 11, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Remember, we've looked at Hebrews 2 several times since we've been in our study of the book of Acts. 
that God confirmed the words of the apostles with signs and wonders and miracles. Again, the New Testament's not written yet. So these miracles were there to prove to them this is truly of God. And so in the city of Ephesus, that is steeped in pagan mythology, that is steeped in demonology, we'll get to that more next, uh, next Wednesday night when we're there, um, God, God did a, if you will, supernatural, spectacular display of his power to convince these people beyond any shadow of a doubt that the message that is being proclaimed is the message of God. God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul that so, from, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. The word handkerchief literally means, I'm not trying to be crude, this literally means a sweat rag. What was Paul's occupation? Tent maker. Okay. Um, how many of you work outside sometimes and you'll, you'll wrap a bandana or something around your head? Um, any, you mow the lawn? Anybody? Two of you that mow the lawn? Okay. Um, more than likely, that's what it, that's what it was. Uh, aprons might have been the garment that he wore as, as, as he's working, uh, protecting uh, from fabrics and stains and other things like that. Um, from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Very unusual. Um, it's the only time that we see this happening in the book of Acts. Now, um, how many have heard of so-called faith healers, televangelists, and, uh, you know, they offer to send you, you know, holy hankies and stuff like that. How many know what I'm talking about? Uh, I want you to understand, Paul wasn't selling these things. He wasn't saying, send me some seed faith money, and we'll send you one of these, and, and you'll get healed. And I know people that got him, and basically all they got was an extra hanky to stick in the drawer. Uh, they didn't get healed of anything. Paul wasn't selling anything. This wasn't snake oil. This is just something that God did. Uh, God can use any means that he chooses. God doesn't offer us any more explanations uh, uh, about this particular thing that went on. Uh, but, but people would get these, these, these rags, these aprons, and somehow uh, the Lord used it um, and it... You know, they got healed. People that were possessed with demons, uh, they, they were cast out of them. Uh, look back in Mark chapter 5. It's not in, entirely unheard of in the New Testament. Mark chapter 5. Verse 25. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians... And it spent all that she had and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his what? Touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now there's no verse in the Bible that said touching Jesus' clothes would heal you. This woman had such incredible faith though in the power of Christ that she actually believed that she touched his garment, uh, that she would be whole. Uh, she is ceremoni ceremonially unclean. She has an issue of blood. Because of that, she wasn't allowed to go to the temple. Uh, she'd had it for 12 years. 
Uh, she, she spent all of her money on doctors and they didn't help her. In fact, she was the worst. Um, she wasn't allowed to touch other people because she was considered unclean. It was almost as if she would have had leprosy. That, that's just the way the Jewish law worked on that. Uh, so she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned, about, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Do you think Jesus really didn't know who did it? He knew exactly what happened. He knew who she was. Uh, he is drawing attention to something uh, for this crowd to understand his power. He's also drawing attention to the crowd about the, the incredible faith of this dear lady. His disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and behold of thy plague. So it was one of those times Jesus healed people sometimes just by speaking the word. Um, sometimes he would touch a, a person and would heal them that way. One time there was a blind man and Jesus actually spit in some dirt and made mud and smeared it on his eyes, told him to go wash himself and did it that way. Um, God could do anything he wants to accomplish his will. And we, we leave that entirely up to him. And so this idea of these, these, these uh, handkerchiefs, these aprons coming from Paul uh, to, to sick people and, and God using that to heal people, that's entirely up to the Lord. One last place that I'll have you turn to and then we'll, we'll move, uh, uh, we'll actually be done here tonight. Turn, if you would, to um, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Before Paul came on the scene, Peter was the main character in the book of Acts. They're still in the city of Jerusalem. The ministry there is in full swing. And uh, let's see. Look, look, if you would, please, verse number 14. The believer And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and from them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. So here's just another one of those unusual instances, the shadow of Peter. That didn't mean Peter was the first pope or anything like that. He was an apostle. They were endued with this ability to work these miracles uh, and so forth. And that's just how God chose to do it. So back in Acts chapter 19, the Holy Spirit is doing an amazing work. The gospel's going out all over this entire region uh, of Asia. There are special miracles that are being wrought. Evil spirits are being cast out of people. People are being healed. And in verse number 13, we're going we're gonna to look next week at yet another extremely unusual situation that takes place in Ephesus. Um, by the time we're done with chapter number 19, we're going to go to Ephesians 
And we're going to have a, a brand new appreciation for a very powerful teaching that Paul wrote back to this church sometime later. But we need to stop there for sake of time. Please be in prayer for our teenagers, for Brother Rob, Brother Dave Clack, uh, Mr. Banowitz that are headed down to North Carolina tomorrow. Uh, keep them in prayer over the next uh, uh, several days through next Monday when they get back. Uh, that the Lord will certainly bless them. Let's all stand together. We don't have to tear anything down. Isn't that cool? We don't have to set anything up. We just get to fellowship for a little bit and go home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible.